0: listening to the jersey guys podcast the show that talks about hard rock heavy metal aor and west coast music in-depth conversation and special guests are always on tap so settle in and turn it up now here are your hosts tom and mark
1: Hey everybody, this is Mark Ballow from the Jersey Guys podcast. We're back with a new episode today. I'm here with my co-host Tom Coyne, as always. And today we're going to talk about the band YNT, a band from California uh, with a long history. And uh, we thought we'd do a little discography discussion on them. So we were talking about this, Tom, right? What was the reason we wanted to do a YNT discography?
0: Well, I think when we started the discography thing, my intention, and I think we spoke about this too, was to try to find bands that potentially could be compared to the to the real greats of hard rock music the the zeppelins the sabbaths deep purples bands that have a discography and a touring history that could possibly be on that level so we've done the europe we've done the triumph we've we've done these bands that maybe have the discography that could rank that high so we both also share a a mutual love and admiration both have seen them a million times live ynt right and uh, i think that's how we arrived on it
1: yeah definitely I, this is this is a good one because i was looking forward to doing this because yeah I, I think this is a band like you said we both love them uh but i guess let's start you know talking about the albums in in chronological order like we always do uh now ynt is a band that a lot of people you know know from their 80s period right and it, and they've been touring now for the last 20-plus years since they got kind of back together again. But I think a lot of people don't know, or they they may know, but they may not be super familiar with the fact that this band put out two albums in the 1970s uh, when they were known as Yesterday and Today. They basically were signed to a, a label, London Records, which was a UK label, and they basically... You know, sounded a lot different to me, right? So the first two albums you have, their first debut came out in 1976. Uh, it was just titled Yesterday and Today. And what do you uh, what do you think about that album?
0: Well, considering that, uh, for the exception of Canamore, I think they were all teenagers at the time that this this album was recorded, uh, roughly anywhere between 19 and 20 years old. It, it was good. Honestly, I didn't even get into this record until Struck struck Down is the first time I became aware of them, right around Struck Down going into Earthshaker. So I backpedaled on on this record. Um, I I didn't remember it coming out at the time. I was in high school at the time. And um, not that that's an excuse.
1: (laughs) Well, I was going to actually ask you that when you actually got into the band, because I know when we talked about... Um, when we did the triumph discography, obviously we touched on the, the early albums and, you know, they were albums that, that the age you're at a little bit older than I am. Um, you weren't really aware of those, those early triumph albums and you kind of came back to them after getting into the, the later albums, a few albums down the line with them. And, and I was wondering what, you know, if that was the same case with Y and T. Yeah.
0: The, this was a band that I, I struck down. I remember seeing in, in the, uh, the cutout section in Zigzag Records, <laughs> as as many bands that I got got into in that time period, and I, I'm guess not that I really remember, but I'm guessing it was through conversations with with Vinny and Phil and Rob and the guys in the store that I, there was one even before that. Mm. So um, I I think for what it is which is a, a, a raw sounding record with a band that definitely didn't have their their full direction and and considering the age of, of the majority of them. I, I thought it was a pretty good record. Um, had a few songs on it that I, I really liked. It was it was it was good for what it was. yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, I, I think of the first I, I kind of look at them and when I think of Y and T's career, I look at like those first two albums kind of like almost separate from everything else because to me they were just they were totally different sounding than what they were to become, you know? And I, I I look at those two albums and I, I, like you said, very raw sounding. Um, and obviously very much of the time. I mean, this is 1976. So they definitely have that Led Zeppelin influence to them. Uh, maybe a little kind of like Led Zeppelin with a little bit of Americanized kind of rock and roll sound. Right. Um, very different. Like what were some of the songs on, on the first album?
0: Well, picking up on what you were just saying also, um, it was a very 70s sounding album. And when you listen to their discography, the way we've gone through it recently, we re- lived a lot of these records. It's interesting to see what every passing year, how their sound caught up to what that era was. And you'll see just the difference from this record to the third record, Earthshaker. Totally. But that's a big difference in the vibe of hard rock music from 1976 to 81 where there was the beginning of the resurgence of, of hard rock especially yeah. in the states.
1: Well yeah, like you said it's funny because you think of of a 5-year period maybe not being that long today, right. but back then there was so much happening in music and right. and a, such a progression of stuff and styles too. Right. So yeah, that that's actually an interesting point.
0: As far as songs that I liked on it, uh, I would say 25 hours a day would be my favorite by far on on the the record that's I,
1: one I like too. Yeah, yeah.
0: I I mean it. Uh, the song Earth Shaker, which oddly enough is on the first album, that was the name of the third album. Yeah, is okay. Animal Woman, it, it was good for what it was. It had a little bit of a muddy production, as did the second record.
1: Yeah, I thought like the song uh, "My Heart Plays Too," which was a, a really it's a long song. It's about six and a half minutes mm-hmm. long, and I, I thought like that song almost gave you a little kind of idea or a glimpse of like where. Maybe yes. they were going to go, you know, in, in the eighties kind of period. And they had some of those songs from the eighties, you know, that the, the longer songs and especially when they did them live, they were like really epic sounding, like yeah, I, I, believe I believe in you, you yeah. uh, winds of change, yeah. you know, songs like that, that were like seven, eight minute songs live. Um, and that to me, I got a little bit of that feel when I, when I listened to My Heart Place too. Yeah. That was the first album. And now two years later, they go on, uh, to release Struck Down in 1978. And what were your thoughts on that? It's it's a really short album, actually. It's a, it is uh,
0: by today's standards, it's an EP. You couldn't get a, <laughs> you couldn't get away with uh, calling this an album.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, it barely clocks in at yeah. you know thirty minutes, and uh, although most yeah. of
0: the Van Halen albums did too,
1: that's true too. Yes,
0: they built a legacy on them. So. Yeah, the first song I love, "Struck Down." That that to me was really you, you got to see what they were going to, yeah. to morph into. It's a record that's not that dissimilar from the record before it. Uh, It's still a little muddy on the production end, a little patchy on the songs. Um, Me, personally, I like this record a little bit more than than the first one.
1: Okay. I kind of maybe flip a little bit that way. Like If I had to pick between these two, I'd probably take the debut over struck down uh i don't know like i said maybe just because of the the couple songs that were on the debut that were a little more epic sounding and whereas this album like i said the songs were three four minutes and that was it uh but yeah you're right struck down was probably the best track and a great track um stargazer to me uh was an interesting song and i I said that to you before we started to record it it almost had like a, a led zeppelin kind of feel to it right
0: well, on, on this album, also you start to get a little bit of a, of an idea of the drummer in the band. I, mm-hmm. I, "I Struck Down" was was a song that accentuated his drumming, and um, Leonard Hayes, obviously, that, that's what I'm talking about. And um, you 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 got that that John Bonham feel in the drums. From him, you had the feeling that this was a guy that was a little bit different than everybody else, and he yeah. drove that band in a different way than than most rock drummers of that time were. Between the develop, the beginnings of the development of Manicetti's voice and and Hayes's drumming. It, it, you started to take a little bit notice of these guys and see the potential that was there.
1: Well, that's interesting you mentioned the, the progression, of, uh, progression of Dave Manichetti's voice because I thought on the first two albums, he, he didn't really have almost that signature sort of tone, right? That he, he would become, right. you know, to be known for uh, later on. But it, it seems like he just he didn't sound quite the same on the first couple albums.
0: No. well, I, Again, I think really it has to do with age. You know, the, I, I think, you know, he was I, I, the recording of this album, I think he was about 22. Okay, so he's still, um, still developing a yeah, little bit. Yeah, and I, I think, yeah, they were in the development stages uh, still at, at this time, except for Hayes. I mean, Hayes was really, a, I noticed, remember listening to this record, that, that this guy on drums was really good. Yeah, very heavy drummer, right? Yeah, like just yeah. A powerful... and like different fills and, and different, a lot like Bonham had like a, a, and it's such a hard thing for drummers, especially in rock music to set themselves apart. Even some of the greatest drummers are not really identifiable that quick. It's very few drummers that when you hear them, you know, you know that's John Bonham, that's Cozy Powell. right? Leonard Hayes had that something different about his drumming and his fills and his technique and the way he hit.
1: No, totally. I, I agree with that for sure. Uh, now, they, they put the first two albums out, 76 and 78, and I said they were on London Records. Uh, and at that point, 78 comes the struck down comes out it's it's done now there's three years between albums and there's actually a a switch in labels too they now sign with a&m records so they're you know a totally u.s based label um something that maybe you think would could help the band a little more as far as promotion of the of the band and stuff like that not being a, a european based label uh but now it's 1981 and Earthshaker comes out so what do you feel about that album
0: well, this was the album that you know really put them over in a big way. I mean, the difference between the first two records and this record were monumental. I remember when this record came out. I remember the buzz about it. They went in a direction that anybody that was following them at all was hoping they were going to go in, and that was a, a giant step in vocals, playing, production, songs. This is the album that really put them on the map. The the was a great cover. Iconic yeah. cover. You saw the Y&T logo for the first time. They abandoned yesterday and today, which I always felt was a kind of ballsy thing on their part. Yeah, to go with a, a band moniker of just Y&T. But- well, they
1: actually didn't. Like, if you look at that on the first on the cover of the, of the Earthshaker album, it's it's more like just a plain. It's Y&T. They shortened it. But it's just a plain Y and T. They didn't really get to that classic logo yet. That would become, you know, something we'd right. see on the next album. But yeah, I mean, it just shortening the name to Y and T was a, it was a big step, like you said.
0: Now that being said, I I don't think that cover to cover this was a great album, but it had you could make an argument maybe maybe the three best songs they they have yeah. are on this album, and that I mean they have so many good songs. I'm saying that kind of off the top of my head. But. Yeah.
1: Well, what, what, were the, what are the three songs you're referring to? Uh,
0: Dirty Girl, Rescue Me, and I Believe in You.
1: Yeah. And Hurricane was a Hurricane's good Hurricane's a too. terrific
0: song, too. And I wouldn't say it's quite as good as those three. But, yeah, yeah it, it's 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 a great racket in, yeah. in the sense of what a jump it was for them as a band. It was only 1981, so, like, we're just, you know, scratching the surface of the second greatest error in rock music history. That's true. And, yeah, yeah they... They knocked it out of the park with this as far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah. Well, actually, it was funny. You had said the other day when we were just talking and we were kind of preparing for this episode and, and we talked about, you know, Earthshaker. And, and you said, I mean, the songs that, that are, are on there are classics, the, the classic songs, the good songs are the classics for sure. And then, but it, it, as, as a whole, there's maybe like, you Know some filler songs in there, so they they hadn't quite reached that period, you know, or that point where they were like that would come in the next couple albums. But I mean, at that point, that there's three, you know, three and maybe four really, really strong songs, and the rest are a little bit fillerish to me. Uh, you had a song, even the song Squeeze, which was sung by Phil Kenimore.
0: Kenimore was such a big part of the band that, um, you know, I guess they had to periodically throw him a song here and there. He was, he was a he was a real nutcase. He was, <laughs> if you watched the documentary, he was a, a, a huge uh, part of the personality of the band. And like we spoke about off before he went on the air, he was also quite a few years young uh, older than, than the rest of the guys in the band. So, yeah. you know, they, they did throw him uh, songs here and there. But that wasn't even, if there was any downside to this album, it was just that it, it was, it was kind of top heavy. There were, yes, there were four great songs. And you know, some filler, but that mm. that's not unlike a lot of rock albums in the 70s, uh, even in the very early 80s. I think we started to get, not to digress too much, but we started to get spoiled a little bit with albums more into the middle to later 80s where there really was a push to write more stronger songs. You started to see 12, 13, 14 song albums. That's true. So you needed more than three or four good songs. This was still more the blueprint of the 70s with shorter albums, eight mm-hmm. or nine songs. You write a three or four good ones, and you know there's a little bit of filler.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, well, so that's 1981. Uh, now, the following year, we go right into 1982. And to me, I mean, this to me is where this is where Y&T kind of blossoms into something because it, the album Black Tiger comes along. It's 1982, the classic Y&T logo now, right? Is makes its debut on an album cover. Uh, to me, this is this is a, this to me was the start of a string of like just great great albums. Um, what were your thoughts on on Black Tiger? Yeah, well, this
0: yeah I, I I agree because now they really bumped it up. They had the the great logo. They had a real iconic cover. And this was an album that I would say was really strong from beginning to end. Oh, totally. There's really no filler on this. Just, just, just the opening sequences of "From the Moon," right down to the "Winds of Change." Yeah. Uh, Max Norman, one of my more favorite producers, produced the album. Really captured Hayes's drum sound on this. Yeah, this, this was as good as it got in 1982.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, Open Fire, Forever, Black Tiger. Don't Wanna Lose. Don't Wanna Lose, that's a great song. Yeah, you said Winds of Change. My Way
0: of the Highway. I, I mean, oh, I was never yeah. a big Ballroom Boogie fan, but um, you know, on an album like this, so what? I mean, yeah. there's just so much good stuff. It was it was rapid fire in your face. Uh, They got the big-name producer on it. Yeah, they, they arrived. On this album... They have fully arrived. Yes. Yeah, everything was to be reckoned with.
1: Totally. Everything fell into place for sure with, with Black Tiger. Um, and even today, I mean, when the band plays live, they open, you know, with open fire. And it's and that's so that's mm-hmm. right there. That's like a, an iconic opening set opening song for, for the live show. So, yeah. So now that's 1982. And now we jump to the following year, 1983. And you have Mean Streak. <laughs> I mean, talking about going from strength to strength, right? What are your thoughts on it? This is
0: my personal favorite album. Me too. Uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's real neck and neck. I, I think most y t fans, aficionados of the band, would probably 9 out of 10 say they're the two best records or in the top three or four at the very least. Yeah. This is my own personal favorite one because this album definitely, in my opinion, had no filler. Yeah. Every single note on this album, I love. Oh, in I fact, agree. I would have always have liked to have seen them do one of these things where you do an entire album and then maybe come back and do some hits yeah. on other albums. this I would have always liked to have seen them just do this album beginning to end.
1: That's a thought. I mean, hey, you know, they, they could do something like that. I mean, they're still out there doing it. So, I mean, sounding as good as, you know, they always have. So, yeah, maybe they could do something like that. Start doing like the Maiden thing, right, where they, they do an album, you know, each tour. And uh, like you said.
0: Yeah, they've never do, done that as far as I know. That that Maybe I came up with a novel idea for them. But th- if it was to be, I mean, there's there's a couple of different albums. that, But I, I really think between Black Tiger and this album that if, they did that or did them back to back. Yeah. Because these are short albums. I mean, if they did them back to back, it would still give them room. I, I, I've i seen them a lot of times when you've seen them. I, I, I've seen them play up to two and a half hours.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, exactly. I mean, even nowadays, right? Two hours minimum, two and a half yeah, hours. Yeah, I, so. I mean, I've
0: seen them at BB King's going back probably 12, 13, 14 years ago where they played, I think, two hours and 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's some of the songs on here, I mean, Mean Streak, the title track, uh, Straight Through the Heart, Lonely Side of Town. Midnight uh, Tokyo. Midnight in Tokyo. Breaking all.
0: Away, Hang High, which oh. I love. Take It to the Limit. Sentimental Fool. Sentimental Fool. Just everything. Like you
1: said, no filler at all. I mean, every song, back to back to back. It just, it, you, you don't get any better. And I, I agree with you, too. I mean, when we do our, at the end of the show here, when we talk and we go give our rankings, you know, uh, we both have Mean Streak at number one. That's that's no secret. So so that's 1983.
0: And they were able to get the big producers because they had Chris uh, Sanganese did this album. And, yeah. And uh, another big favorite producer of mine. They were able to land... Uh, They had the big record label, they had the budget, obviously, and they were bringing in, you know, one big name producer after the other to do their records.
1: Yeah, so now that's 1983, and now we jump to the following year, 1984, and now we have In Rock We Trust. And that to me is just, it's again, you know, strength to strength. I mean, maybe, I don't know if you want to say it's a shade below... The Mean Streak and Black Tiger, but I, I don't know. I mean I think it's right up there with them, if you had, honestly, if I had to, you know, say, what what do you think? What do you think about in Rock We Trust?
0: Not not as much as you do. No, really. Okay. <laughs> not as much as you do. Okay. Um I I thought that they they lost something on this record. There were a number of songs on it. That I, I didn't care for it all. There were there was some really good songs. I mean, obviously don't Don't Stop Running. It's been a staple in their set going back. To the time of this record, right up to present, and deservedly so. Uh, Masters and Slaves is a good song. I I didn't like stuff like Rock and Roll's gonna save the world. I hated lipstick and leather, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and and the thing with lipstick and leather is I, I knew I knew at the time they were getting pulled in the direction of lipstick and leather. And, uh, we spoke about this before we went on the record tonight with, with the show is I was hoping to see them go in a, in a totally different direction than this record. I was really hoping to see menachetti accented more for his vocals and guitar playing almost like, um, type of stuff that John Norm started to do, the stuff that Gary Moore was doing in the middle eighties, um, you know, in the style of some of the Rory Gallagher's, uh, material. I really wanted to see him accented more and it became in my opinion the, the the first beginnings of them getting pulled into the the lipstick and leather period of of rock. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm not that I'm not a fan of that, but I always thought this band or certainly Menecetti was miles ahead of of that.
1: Yeah. Well, let's talk about Dave Manichetti for a little bit here uh you know kind of going off track a little bit but i mean i i know we both agree with this but i mean here's a guy who is a a total double threat right i mean great vocalist and just a great guitar player so like who are some of the guys like you mentioned rory gallagher when i think of dave menichetti i I totally kind of have rory gallagher in my mind uh you know someone like a gary moore which you also said Um, And I think even, I think he was influenced by like, you know, Jimi Hendrix, right? I mean, so, but I mean, here, talk about Manichetti being, you know, the double threat that he is.
0: Manichetti is what I call is is an attack player, which are my favorite players. And I've I've seen him uh, more times than I can count from the 80s right up until probably four or five years ago. And have watched him play literally two or three feet away from me. He attacks the guitar. He plays the Les Paul, which is far and away my favorite hard rock guitar. And um, he attacks the guitar very much similar to the way Gary Moore and, and Rory Gallagher both played. And and John Norm. Mm-hmm. I, 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 he's another guy that is in that, that realm. Because they're, they're all guys... You know, Moore, Moore was influenced by by Gallagher, and Menachetti was from the Gary Moore school of playing. Norm was a total Gary Moore fanatic, and that's where I wanted to see this band go, especially coming off those two records before this, or three records before this. And uh, maybe I was too in tune with them at the time, but I I I, I saw a shift in a direction that I really didn't want to see them go.
1: Yeah. I just, I, I, I know we talked about this and maybe it was a little bit of like an age thing or something, because at that point I was when in rock, we trust came out, I was like 14. So when I, and I, I really wasn't into it at that point, I didn't really get to know the band till a couple of years later. Um, so I of course went back to the early stuff, but I mean, when I listen to in rock, we trust now, it's like, I know you said you weren't really a fan of like rock and roll is going to save the world. I actually, I like the track a lot. Master and slave to me is to me is one of the better. Y&T songs. That's a good song, and 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 you think about it lyrically. I mean, it's so in line with what's going on today in the world. No masters
0: and slaves, and and don't don't stop running to me. Save the album. Yeah, they're they're both real good songs. No question about it.
1: I mean, I even I songs like Breakout Tonight. Even though it's a little maybe not you know anything special, but I thought that was a really good song. Um, This time, uh, go for the throat, even which I think was a bonus track. Right, came out later on. Uh, I don't think that was on yeah, the original album. I think album, that right? might
0: actually be on the live album. I mean, oh, now you're okay. putting me on the spot. Here, <laughs> I, I I I think that the live album that came out around this time that may have been on as as an extra song. That that song showed up somewhere. Okay. Yeah.
1: But well, well, now that we talked about the live album, which was Open Fire, right? Right. You're referring to, uh, which came out. I think it was what 1985 that that came out. Yes. Uh, but in 1985, they did another studio album. Now at this point. I mean, this album, and I know you, you talked about it earlier and, a little bit ago, and you said that you wanted to see them go in a different direction. Well, <laughs> they totally went in the opposite direction. No, yeah, and I knew with, that was
0: coming. Yeah, with Down uh, for the that, Count. Yeah, um, no, I knew that. Was, this <laughs> album I knew was coming just because, I, like I said, I was maybe too in tune with them. Yeah. And I, I and, you know, in, in tune with the time. And I knew this sort of album was coming, and uh, it was a huge turnoff to me. Really? Again, they got they, they nailed another big time producer Kevin Beamish. Yeah, not a fan of this this album at all.
1: Okay, yeah, that's so what we're talking about. Nineteen eighty five. We're talking about down, down for the count. Uh, the keyboards all over this album, right? Which,
0: which is which is fine. I mean, I, I to me, I would have liked to seen them go in the direction of of Hammond keyboards, mm-hmm. uh, not so much the keyboards that were on it. Yeah, it, it, to me, this this album cheapened them. And even when I'm looking at it now and, you know, the makeup and the real cheeseball clothes and um, what they had working against them is that except for Menachetti, none of these guys looked really good in makeup and women's clothes <laughs> where other bands did. And um, it, it just cheapened what I thought they were and what I wanted them to be going forward. And uh, Summertime Girls, I always hate it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a cover of "Your Mama Don't Dance," which oh, that is an awful song. Totally
1: to begin with. did not need to be um,
0: on. <laughs> a lot of other cheeseball uh, throwaway songs in the name of rock. I, I which was the lead-off track. I, I I didn't like that. And "Tastes um, well, Like an Angel" is a decent song. That I like um, a lot.
1: Yeah, I mean, they actually used some outside writers on this album too, right? Um, "All American Boy" was uh, Van Stevenson co-wrote. I think that song, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah, I think you know, and then you obviously had the cover, like you said. Um, Another interesting thing I thought on this album that was weird was that they the classic Y&T logo wasn't used on this album, and it's, it, it was kind of strange because they were already like you know three albums into using that, and and that was such a big thing back in like the early '80s. Yeah, right? I mean, it,
0: now that you mention that, I you're right about that.
1: Yeah, that was that was strange. Now it's it, what's funny about this album too is actually. Currently, the current band of Y&T features John Nyman on guitar, rhythm guitar. He actually made an appearance with some backing vocals on this album. So the, he goes way back with the band. And, you know, I mean, even look at the, the, the keyboard players that played on this album as guests. You had Claude Schnell playing on a couple tracks. Uh, you know, it, it just, you had, it was just total keyboards, but I loved it. You know, it, that was me. You know, that, that was me at 15. I just, I love the album. So, but I can see where you're, where you're, you know, what you're saying for sure.
0: Yeah, I, I, I Needless to say, if you haven't picked up on it already, I didn't like this record. <laughs> I didn't like this record. I didn't like where they were headed. I didn't like anything about it. Okay.
1: Hey, fair enough. That's that's fine. You know. Uh, now, two years goes by. Uh, the band again now switches. They were on A and M records, and they now switch to Geffen records. And it's 1987, and Contagious comes out. And now I personally, this was the band, this was the album that I actually kind of got beyond Summertime Girls, which we knew from MTV. But this was the band I kind of, or the album I kind of got into with the band. Uh, so, you know, what do you think about Contagious?
0: I like this record a lot. It uh, restored my faith in them. Um, I, we were talking about this before we were on, on the air They kind of lost a lot of steam, though. I remember when this record came out, uh, there wasn't a lot of buzz about it. There wasn't a lot of excitement about it. Um, I remember in the record store that I hung out almost every day, uh, people weren't too wild about it. I remember Kerrang! and some of the magazines weren't too wild about it. And a a lot of it had to do with the fact that Leonard Hayes was no longer in the band.
1: Yes. Yeah. Besides changing record labels, they got a new drummer.
0: They got a new drummer, and Hayes had back then and still to this day has a rabid following, more so than ninety-five percent of the drummers that have ever been in hard rock, whether you think he's great, not this that great, overrated, or whatever your opinion of, Leonard Hayes is one of the most iconic hard rock drummers of all time. I remember a lot of people being very unhappy that he was at it. I would say next to Meniketti, he was the most popular you know, uh, guy in terms of interest in the band. That being said, I liked the record a lot. Yeah, I, I think the songs were were much better. I, I think even though it had that you know late beginning of the you know the later eighties sound and and approach, mm-hmm. I, I thought the songwriting was much better, and I thought it was a huge step back in the direction of when I did like them.
1: To me, like I said, this was the album that I kind of got into the band with. So I mean, I can listen to this album. And I like really like almost every song. I mean, you have "Contagious," the the title track, uh, "L.A. Rocks," "Temptation," which was uh, a song written by Bruno Reverdel mm-hmm. and Al Petrelli, right, who were at the, was a Danger Danger demo, I think, at one point. That's right. Early on, um, "Fight for Your Life," uh, "Armed and Dangerous," "Bodily Harm," uh, "Eyes of a Stranger," "Rhythm or Not," "Rhythm or Not." I mean, there's there's a lot of really good songs. Yeah, it's on a terrific record. This was a great album for me. Uh, now that's 1987. Uh, the band now, there's a three-year break. They're still with Geffen Records. Uh, again, they brought Jimmy DeGrasso in for the Contagious album in 1987. He now continues into the with the band into 1990, and they released a 10 album. But now they also have a new guitar player in Steph Burns, right? What Steph a-
0: Burns, who was a terrific player in his own right and – I learned more about the whole thing with Steph Burns through the documentary of how much respect Manicetti had for him, and they they shared all the solos. I mean, there were solos in iconic Y&T albums that uh, Manicetti would hand off to him because that's how much he thought of him. Uh, It was it was a really good lineup to me. That was a a change that made them better. Nothing against Joey, uh, you know, and his playing. Was more of a rhythm guitar player, mm-hmm. which is fine. I'm not, you know, I'm not knocking anything about that. But they now had two exemplary lead guitar players, which, yeah. if you saw any of the live stuff from this tour, was very impressive. Yeah, um, I like this album a lot. Another album that I would say similar to Contagious is is leaning much more in in the direction of their their vintage period. It's it's slicker, obviously, 1990. Yeah, exactly. Um,
1: Well, now talk about—we talked about this before. But as much as Jimmy DeGrasso was in the band, he really didn't play a lot on this album, right?
0: Yeah, there was a lot of problems with him and Stone, who was the producer, Mike Stone. Uh, We heard about that. I remember even back in the day when this record was before this record came out. I remember talking about it with my friends because there was a lot of stuff written about it in, in the magazines at the time. That there was a rift between uh, DeGrasso and Stone, and to the extent that Steve Smith played on on either all of this record or the majority of the record, that's right. never really been you know hammered out exactly what. But there was there was problems with DeGrasso, who, who who live was a terrific drummer. I don't know what the issue was in the studio, but there was a big issue.
1: Yeah, I mean there there again, you, like you talked about, there are some great songs on this album. Uh, Hard times. Uh, Lucy, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which was obviously the one of the singles uh MTV videos. You know, Come In From the Rain. Ten uh, Lovers sh- is a good song. Ten Lovers, a great song, Surrender, uh, She's Gone. Um, that had a great riff. I thought that was a classic yes. Man and Ketty of Ten Lovers very bluesy sounding song you know uh yeah i thought this was a really good album actually a funny little thing that maybe a lot of people don't know about jeff paris played keyboards and did backing vocals on this album i'm not sure so sure that i even knew that <laughs> there you go <laughs> so it's a little thing for the aor guys out there <laughs> this is a beginning uh kind of the f- the end of the first period of the band right uh it's 1990 geffen records the sounds uh the style of music is changing uh the band kind of goes on hiatus right And five years later, they come back, 1995, and they come out with Musically Incorrect.
0: Yes, and there may have never been a record more aptly uh, titled.
1: uh, I agree with that 100%. (laughs) (laughs) They're now on uh, Music for Nations, which is a European label, right? And uh, yeah, I remember, and funny story about this one, I'll, I'll go to a little personal history on this. I was on vacation in Europe in 1995, and I remember going into a Tower Records and saw a new Y&T album. And I was like, wow, you know, it's a, a brand new Y&T album. I got to pick this up. You know, this was back before, you know, a digital thing. You couldn't really hear them. So I, I bought the CD, and two weeks later, I come home from my vacation, and I get to listen to it, and I was... I was not happy. <laughs> that's, that's probably the only thing I can say uh, about Musically Incorrect. I was not happy. <laughs> what, uh, what were your feelings on this?
0: Same thing. and That's putting it mildly. <laughs> uh, I, I remember there was some, you know, again, not like a real big buzz about this record because it came out in 95, which was, you know, another, uh, probably the last, or one of the more last dismal years for, for music in general. And I, I remember being totally off-put by the cover. You know, the black and white cover and the kids holding their... It just had that...
1: Well, that was perfectly apropos with the yeah, two little kids it, holding their hands it, it, over their ears. Right. It was it, like it no just, one wanted it just, to listen just to this. Just the
0: cover alone had kind of like a low-budge, grunge look to it. Totally. Um, I, I know from, at the time and in retrospect, uh, Kenamore wrote a lot of this album. I think Menicetti kind of has alluded to the fact that, you know, without throwing them under the bus, that it was, they really had a, there were a lot of writing blocks at yeah. the time. They had been away from Y&T music for four or five years and there weren't a lot of ideas and I, I kind of more kind of uh, took the rein with it. The songs are, are not good. Uh, a little beatle in places, which is yes. not bad. But okay. like, I love the Beatles, but it wasn't like, Good songs.
1: Right. Well, it was kind of, and you think about that time in, in the mid-90s when you had a lot of the grunge bands out there. A lot of those grunge bands even had some of that Beatles-y sort of sound and influence in their, their music. But it just, it was a totally different, you know, thing. Right. I mean, I, I agree with you because I love the Beatles, too. But, yeah, it was, even even Manichetti's playing on this album. It was just that very yeah, Very pedestrian. Yeah. yeah,
0: very pedestrian. This was a terrible album. This album should have never been released this should have been something that was like on a shelf that came out like, uh, you know, 25 years after the fact.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the only uh, song I can kind of even mention on this album would be 21st Century, and I don't even know if that's uh, something worth mentioning. I, I went
0: back to it recently when we were talking about doing this, just think that maybe I missed something at the time, but in general, right, I really don't usually change my opinions, and but I got halfway through it, and my opinion was the same. It's terrible.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with that 100%. Uh, well, now we go from 1995 with musically incorrect, and we go a couple years down the line, and now it's 1997. Uh, we have endangered species comes out again. It's on Music for Nations, so it's and it's the same lineup, by the way. That right. goes back to the the ten album, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it's the same band, uh, all the same players on the album. But what were your feelings on endangered I, I, species? I like this
0: record, kind of saw it and didn't know what to expect from it because I hated the other one so much, but. Uh, I, I liked it a lot. It sounded like Y&T. The songwriting was much better. It had a lot of heavy grooves, a lot of heavy riffs on it. It was exponentially better than, than the predecessor, and actually, at times, sounded like some of their vintage stuff.
1: Yes, yeah, I agree with that totally. And I what you just said about how that last album left such a bad taste in your mouth that I would, I think the same thing. I had that same opinion that when this album came out in 97, I almost kind of like pushed it off to the side. It was going to be another. Assumed, right. Yeah. And, but I mean, going back to it now, just even the last week or so, as we were preparing for this episode and listening to it again, it, it's got some really good songs on it. It does. He- Maybe some of the heaviest yes. Y&T material. Yes. And even just Manichetti's playing. Like yep. Heavy, yep. great riffs, great heavy, you know, groove to the album. I, I-, I liked a lot about this
0: album. I did, too. I, I-, I uh, restored my faith in them and my interest in them. And it was, and it was around this time that they... I think they started to play live again, right?
1: Not too long after. Yeah. yeah I think it was probably the early early 2000s, yeah. 2000, 2001. Right. Maybe they started to kind of get back to, especially at least concentrating in, in in you know the U.S. And I mean, now they tour all over the world pretty much every year yeah, except the I, last I, couple of years, I obviously. I think the
0: first time I saw them when they came back was 05 Okay, B.B. Yeah. King's.
1: Yeah, so it might have been yeah, a couple yeah. even a few years after that. So, but yeah, it was it, that was a really good album and uh, I mean some of the songs on there we mentioned even before we started to record. There was uh Black Gold, uh God Only Knows, Something for Nothing, uh, it was a super heavy riff in that yeah, song. Even the first
0: song I liked a lot. Hello, 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 I'm back.
1: Okay, yeah. And even well a song like Try to Believe you talked about kind of having a, a classic yes. sort of sound. That sounds like vintage yes. Y&T to me. That's, yes. that's a that's great song.
0: It, it, it actually had some leanings towards some of their best stuff.
1: Now, at that point, I mean, the album comes out, like you said, it was probably a, about maybe five years or so, maybe a little more than that, Till the band actually kind of got back in to, to touring again right. on a regular basis. Uh, and they've been doing it since then. I mean, obviously, the pandemic, the last year and a half, put that aside right
0: with that lineup obviously uh you know not with steph burns or degrasso right
1: yeah when they got back and started playing live again and concentrating on on touring and and all around the world but yeah they they brought in some new members they brought in john nyman right who was a guy like i said had history with the band from back in the 80s um, maybe even before that and then they brought in mike vanderhul on drums right Uh, well actually uh leonard hayes when they first started again he came back with the band right
0: he did he did do a tour with them, um, trying to think what year that was. It I want to say like around 01. I don't recall them playing around the New York area, though.
1: I, I did see him once with Leonard Hayes with in, in New yeah. Jersey here at uh, Dingbats. Okay, you remember uh, the year that was? And, and I don't remember the year exactly. Yeah, well, it, it, it definitely yeah. was
0: before. I, I, it probably was around 2000, 2001, 2002, and around that period.
1: Okay, yeah. Yeah, it could be. I, I definitely saw him once with Leonard Hayes uh, when they kind of reformed and, and started you know, playing shows. And don't forget Hayes
0: was with Ian Gillen for a while too. Right. Yes. He That's was right. on the toolbox record. Yeah. And, um, he did, he did do touring with uh, Ian Gillen also. I think when he had come back with YT though, it was, you know, I, I, it's, I mean, everybody knows that Hayes had, you know, extreme substance abuse and alcohol problems. Right. And I think with the passage of time, um, there, there were issues with him playing live and, being on the road, and you know, there's there was clearly issues that they couldn't go forward with.
1: Yeah, that didn't last too long for sure. Um, like you said, then I, I had mentioned they brought in Mike Vanderhul, uh, who's been with them for the last maybe 20 years or so now.
0: He does a good job, he's a workman like type of drama. Yeah. Um,
1: I like him as a player, yeah. I think he does a good job. You know, job. He's, not
0: really, he, he's not able to replicate the Hayes sound, and that's no knock on him because Hayes was. He, he was a lot like John Bonham. He had a certain something about him that um, set him apart. But he, he does a nice job. I, I just, again, I, I'm not going to knock him for the fact that... I think you could take some guys that are great technicians on the drums that maybe not not able to replicate all the stuff that Hayes did just because of the way he did it and the funky type of style that he had. Right. But... Uh, that lineup has proven to be a, a very good lineup for uh, for Dave for for decades now.
1: Yeah, I mean they you know obviously Phil Kenmore passed away, um, but you know they they've had a couple different bass players since then. But I mean they, they always bring in quality players. The band still sounds great. Um, like I said, no no knock. I mean the band now obviously is really. Dave Manichetti?
0: It's the Dave Manichetti band. He's using the name, which, uh, you know, he's been, he was the foremost guy in the band, so I don't begrudge him that. But I, I personally felt that when Ken died, the Y&T that I knew died with it because I always kind of looked at those two guys as being Y&T. They were kind of like bookends. Yeah. And um, anybody that's seen a YNT and t would know that Ken Amore had a great stage presence. He was more than just the bass player in the band. Uh, he had a, a lot to do with the success of the band on every level, and he had a tremendous stage presence. And for me, it was never the same to see that I've seen them, have seen them many times even after Phil passed away, but it was never the same. And, you know, it's, it's basically a, a glorified, you know, Dave Menichetti band. Um, he's such a talent that I still went to go see him, and I certainly don't begrudge him using the name.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, hey, at 68 years old, he's just as good, probably, as he ever was. Uh, playing, singing, everything, He still got it. Uh, so
0: Every time I saw this guy, I always – expect. and I remember we, we spoke about it one time. We saw him one year where he came off of a, a cruise, uh, one of those rock cruises, mm-hmm. and he had problems with his voice, and he talked about it, that he got sick on the cruise, which – it's not shocking. Yeah. And, um, but as a total package, every time I've seen this guy year after year, I always expected to go that one time and you say, eh, you know, he's starting to slip. He's not what he, and, and it never happened. Every no. time I saw this guy is like, I walked out of there and was like, it's the ultimate rock star. Yeah. The tremendous player. Great, great presence, great voice, you know, and gives you 110%, never mails it in, never cuts the set short. Right. Um, and I haven't seen him. I guess probably in about probably about four years now. But I have no doubt that you know nothing has changed with him at all.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I got to see him. I think it was two thousand nineteen. No, actually, maybe two thousand twenty. Uh, just before the whole pandemic thing hit, I got to see them. Uh, yeah. I, I. You know. Agree totally. He still still was on on point and sounding great and playing great and the backing band was good and I mean yeah, everything was still. On all, you know, firing on all cylinders for Y&T, as far as I'm concerned. He's
0: he's one of the great all-around talents in the history of hard rock music. Yeah, from 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 the late '60s going right to present. I I think you'd have to put him right off the top of my head. I, he's he's a top five talent. Yeah. That's yeah, how well, I mean, I think
1: when we, we were talking about it earlier about you know double threats and as far as singing and guitar playing, I mean, you got the the Gary Moores, you know, you've got the the John Sykes, uh, you know, you've got those type of players. Even Rick Emmett, we talked about, we did a Triumph uh, discography discussion. Dan Huff. Yeah, yeah. So you got guys like that, and he, yeah, he's right up there with them. I mean, there's no doubt. You know, none of those
0: guys are a singer that uh, that he is. I yeah. mean, uh, you, you make an argument that a few of them maybe you know a little bit more technically. Proficient than him, like like maybe maybe a Sykes, but um, none of those guys. We just re- and they're they're all guys that I love. None of yeah. them have his voice. Yeah. So when you really look at the guitar playing, the voice, uh, the longevity of the band, the stage persona, what he gives you on stage. I mean, the guy the guy leaves his his heart and soul on the stage every every night. I mean, yeah. I've I've seen this band at least ten times, and every time I've seen them going back from back in the day to four years ago yeah he never never cuts anything short
1: right right now we kind of got a little off off topic here because we were talking about it but we we just when we finished talking here before we got on to a couple other things we were with the 1997 album Endangered species now there's a long break there's like a 13 year break and they finally come out now they're on frontiers records who kind of brings everybody back out. Uh, you know? But they, they come out in 2010, and they released the Face Melter album. Uh, what was your feelings on this album?
0: I can tell you the first feeling I have right now is I can't believe this record came out in 2009. It just <laughs> doesn't feel like 12 years ago. Yeah. I like this record a lot. I know it's, from what I listen to people on, on YouTube and the endless Facebook pages that I'm on or get dragged onto one way or another, it, it has kind of a mixed... Uh, reaction, but I like this record a lot. I, I thought it was heavy. The songwriting overall, I thought was really good. At the time, I didn't know that there were health issues with Amore. so I kind of at the time thought this was going to be this, the the beginning of you know the way Y&T was in their heyday, where they did a record every couple of years, right? Because um, I, I liked this record a lot. I had already seen them a bunch of times. in in the area and and thought they were great live and it was great to see Ken Amore and and, and Menichetti on the stage together and the the big bummer to me was that I I didn't know that you know Phil Phil was sick or at the beginning stages of being sick and uh, that this was going to be the last record
1: yeah no, yeah, I agree with you totally. I mean, I, I think there is some really good songs on this album. Uh, stuff that's still in their live set today. I mean, they do I'm Coming Home. They on do with the show is Blind a great. Blind Patriot. On with uh, like yeah, the show. It, yeah. I mean, there, there is a lot of really good songs that are, are, you know, they fit right in the live set with all the classic songs, too. Yes. And they, they, they fit in the music.
0: I love the cover of the album. Um, I, I thought that was terrific. I, I, I There's a number of songs on it that, to me, were just really true good hard rocking Y&T songs and like i said i thought at this point you know i was so big on 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 them and having seen them live and seeing the two of them you know together and putting out a new album i thought that this was going to be you know something to lead to more but right it wasn't meant to be
1: yeah unfortunately and you know uh Dave Mantecati is the last man standing with the uh, the original lineup of the band. So you know, unfortunately, the other three members are, are not with us anymore. But yeah, I mean, uh, it, that's basically the the twelve album uh, you know studio album career of of Y&T. Now they also did a couple albums that they released in. Two thousand and four, I believe it was. They were called Unearthed, and that came out as two volumes, uh, two disc set: a volume one, a volume two. And they had they had a lot of songs from the band's whole career. I mean, basically starting from like nineteen seventy four on up to that early two thousand three, two thousand four period. Um, I think one had 17 tracks, one had 18 tracks. So there's a lot of material there, right? From the whole career yeah, of
0: the there, band. there is. And again, looking at the dates on these, I can't believe that these came out like uh, 17, 18 years ago. Because yeah. it doesn't seem like it. I'll be very honest with you, when these records came out, I really digested them to go back to them now and pick out. Because you really had to go through this. Again, it's like the better part of 40 songs, and I'm not going to say all 40 were good. Yeah, But... There's probably anywhere from 12 to 15 songs inter- interspersed in here that are real good. That yeah. could have been on any of their top records. Yeah. So if you don't have this, you, you should you should get both of them and, and make that initial go through and pick out the songs. Because there are some really good songs. There's some throwaway stuff. Yeah. Um,
1: well, now, as I, as I remember, and I, I haven't looked at the booklets in a while, didn't they kind of, like, they talk about each song, right? Yes. And whatever it's from, exactly. and what year it was right. from. Right, they don't leave anything.
0: you hanging in the lurch. They, they'll pretty much tell you where where it was recorded and what period of time. And again, if you if you don't have it, it's worth getting, because there are some real gems between yeah. these two, uh, Volume 1 and Volume 2s.
1: Yeah, totally. Totally worth owning, for sure. Um, the band also put out, you know, several live albums throughout their career, and um, you had Open Fire in 1985, uh, Yesterday and Today Live in 1991, which was kind of the album that when the band kind of went on hiatus for the first time there, they, they kind of put that out as the swan song. Right. Um, then you had the Live at the uh, Mystic, which was came out more recently, 2012. Uh, they also did the, uh, I don't think it was officially released, but there was the, was it the 1980? The Live and the Friday Rock Show? Yeah, the BBC. Yeah, I have show. that on CD. I don't think that was an official. I don't release, think it was official.
0: It's a silver press CD. It had good sound. Um, yeah. If you don't have it, it's probably something you could find on on um, eBay.
1: Yeah, it's probably like a, a radio broadcast. It was right. a radio broadcast. Yeah. yeah. And and now in in 2019, the band finally put out their long-awaited documentary, um, which was called on with the show, uh, and that basically covers all history of the band. Unfortunately, you know, you don't have. Uh, Phil Kenamore, you know, interviews because, yeah, you know, it, it was recorded. That's a tough watch after.
0: because it's clear, clearly watching it. You, you you saw Leonard Hayes in um, the tail end of his life. You saw Joey. Uh, Alves. Yeah. yeah uh, clearly suffering from, from cancer related issues. Yeah. Um, it, it was tough to watch, but it was really well done. I mean, it took forever. I think we used to joke about it is it you know will we live long enough for this yeah. thing to come out but it was it was really worth the wait
1: yeah that was that was a real good watch it's a long it's, it's you know it's, it's about what two and a half hours or more than that. yeah and
0: the bonus footage there's a lot of bonus footage with when it haze so like some of the comments that i've made in the in the podcast about when it haze if you think i'm exaggerating you can yeah. look in the documentary and see what a lot of drummers of that era thought of him. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. They
1: do get a lot of people talking and, and talking about the influence. Yeah. That. Oh, that's uh, one other thing. Tom's pointing to me here and, and we forgot to mention, we we also want to bring up that Dave Manichetti had some solo albums that he released. You want to talk a little bit about this?
0: I, I do. That's why I didn't want to, uh, I don't <laughs> want to wrap up with because yeah. I'm a, Big, big fan of the Dave Medichetti solo record, uh, the first of which was called On the Blue Side. And I couldn't have been happier with this record because this is what I've wanted to see him do for years. And he finally did it. Mm. A hardcore blues album. And when I say hardcore, I don't mean something that sounds like it was recorded in 1952. It was uh, very blues bass with a lot of hard edge guitar. Uh, Again, I mean, Gary Moore made a second career out of doing stuff like this. Right. And 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 this album, quite honestly, I would say ranks with the first Gary Moore blues album. It was that good. It's something that I've, it was a direction that I wanted to see Y&T going at times, which they really never did, maybe dabbled once in a while. But this was a terrific record, uh, starting off with the James Brown Penn song, Man's World. Not not a not a weak song on the album. If you like Johnny Winter, Rory Gallagher, Robin Trower type of blues based guitar shredding, yeah, which I know you do, which I do, <laughs> <laughs> and with Menaketti's voice, who pulls it off exemplary, so. Yeah. Yeah, well, lo- I love this record. The second one um, was called Manichetti. Mm-hmm. It's not as blues-based as the set, as the first one, but it was a great record. And w- one of the reasons I wanted to talk about these records is I feel that both of these Manichetti records are actually better than at least a third of the Y&T album, <laughs> maybe, maybe half okay. of them. Uh, the second one is... Kind of a Y&T album. It's, it's, yeah, a little more straight ahead, yeah, not blues as bass But yeah. a lot of straight up Y&T, like prime Y&T type of songs. And there was a terrific Live in Japan album by this band as well that I would highly recommend to anybody that wants to go out and get the the two studio albums if you don't already have them.
1: Yeah. He actually played uh I know on the West Coast in California he played a lot of lot uh, solo yes. shows with yes, the, the solo did. albums. He didn't do any probably. shows
0: around here no, 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 but he
1: did play a lot of California shows. But um yeah, so I'm glad you uh you caught me on that. I'm sorry I almost missed that. I wasn't that. gonna let you go on that. <laughs> but uh yeah, so like I said before, uh we got it you know back into that. Uh what we always do, Tom and I always give you our rankings of the albums, uh, to our own personal rankings and do you want to start with your uh, ranking on the the 12 albums yes
0: i will um number one i have mean streak uh number two i have black tiger i don't think it's a shocker to anybody that those are my one and twos three was earth shaker four was contagious five was the album 10 six was the album endangered species seven was face melter Struck Down was 8, and Rock we, we Trust is 9, Yesterday and Today's self-titled 10, down for the count, 11, and Musically Incorrect, Shocker, 12.
1: <laughs> well, it, it, I think it's funny because when, when I looked at yours and, and I look at mine, it's we're, we're exact on number 1 and we're exact on number t- uh, 12. <laughs> so, sorry. for me, but we kind of, I, I kind of jump all over the place. Then you know, different than what you had. But for me, I, I start with number one is Mean Streak. Uh, number two is In Rock We Trust. Number three is Contagious. Uh, number four is Black Tiger. Number five is Down for the Count. Number ten, or I'm sorry, number six is number ten. <laughs> six is ten. Um, number seven is Earthshaker. Uh, number eight is Face Melter. Number nine is Endangered Species. Uh, Number 10 is the self-titled debut Yesterday and Today. Uh, Number 11 would be Struck Down. And number 12, Musically Incorrect. Um, we can't call it 13 because, you know, <laughs> there's only right. 12 albums, but yeah, but, but yeah, we jump around a lot. And I, I looked at that, uh, you know, and I, I, think it's, again, you know, everybody knows they've listened to us for 10 episodes now. And, and we've talked about this before. There's about a 10 year gap in, in between ages of, of me and Tom. And, and so obviously, you know, I, some of the stuff I, I might it's
0: 11 and a half to be exact. is it 11 and
1: right. a half. Okay. I mean, some of the stuff that I kind of gravitate towards, you know, that were more of that 80s sort of hair era stuff, you know, I could see that, you know, you were beyond that at that point, you know, so I can kind of kind of understand that. But again, everybody has their own personal opinions. And, and we'd love to hear you guys out there give us yours, you know, we'll post our our rankings on Facebook, like we always do. And we encourage you guys to kind of give us your thoughts on favorite albums, you want to give us one through 12, you want to give us number one, or whatever you want to do, you know, definitely do that too. But yeah, I, I think that uh, that wraps up this episode, right? Uh, number 10 is in the books. So, uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, this was a lot of fun. I, next to, um, I, I would say, this in the Europe discography is I've had the most fun with so far.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're clocking in at just about an hour. So uh, I think it's the longest kind of discography discussion that we've had so far. Uh, But yeah, this was a a fun one. I think we both wanted to do this one for a while. And uh, so yeah, uh, we'll see you guys back uh, again with a new episode soon. And we hope you guys enjoyed this one. So uh, again, thanks a lot and talk to you guys soon.
0: Take care.